Welcome to episode 48, Supporting the Coming Out Process for LGBTQ Adolescents by John Sovek, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hi, my name is John Sobek, and I want to welcome you to our conversation today on supporting LGBTQ adolescents and the coming out process. So I want to start by introducing myself and sharing a little bit about who I am, and then also sharing about why we're here together having this conversation. So once again, my name is John Sobek, and I'm a therapist in Pasadena, California. And I don't know what your experience was like, but when I was in my graduate program, there was very little conversation about the journey of LGBTQ people and how to support them in their mental health processes. Um, At most in my two-year program, I would say there was three hours that looked at this topic. But even more alarming to me was that in that conversation, there was actually zero time spent on LGBTQ adolescents and their developmental processes and what it meant for them to come out. So what that did is it lit a fire in me to say, I need to learn more about this. Why? Because I'm an openly queer man and it was important to me to be able to support my community, especially teens who were following me in this process of coming out. So what I did for myself is I started doing a lot of research. I started reading journals, attending trainings, Um, and connecting with colleagues who were thought leaders ahead of me on this path. And what that brought for me over time was this desire to get out and help deepen the conversation for other therapists and professionals in the field. So that's what brings me here today. Um, Other things that I think are really important is that each of us um, who identify as LGBTQ are having our own very unique coming out processes. I know for me, my process was actually relatively painless. Um, My friends found it really cool that they had a gay friend, and they were very supportive, as was my family. But for a lot of the teens that I work with, the way they come into my office is because they have attempted suicide. And in the process of being in a hospital, they have come out to their family in a very painful and emotional way. And then they come to my office and we do the work of helping them to explore this process as a beautiful growth and developmental piece for who they are. Hopefully by us having this conversation today, we're gonna be able to push against that a little bit and create therapeutic and wellness spaces where LGBTQ adolescents and their families are going to be feel supported and feel understood. So with that being said, let's get started. And one of the things that I'd like to focus on to begin with is really help um, all of you to create an understanding of what it might be for an LGBTQ teen as they're going to school on a daily basis. So the information I'm about to share with you is from the Gleason study. That's the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network. And every two years, they do a national school climate survey. And in that survey, they it's an online survey that kids can answer anonymously. And the last one that we're using uh, was reported in 2017, and that had over 23,000 respondents. So this really gives us a pretty deep overview of what the journey is like for LGBTQ students as they go through their school day. 
So one of the first numbers I'd like to look at is almost 60% of LGBTQ students report feeling unsafe at school because of their sexual orientation. So we're looking at almost 60% of kids who identify as LGBTQ feel that this place that they're required to go to, often for eight hours a day, um, is an unsafe place for them. And almost 50% of LGBTQ students uh, report feeling unsafe at school because of their gender expression. So once again, large numbers of kids who aren't feeling safe in their school environment. Almost 75% of LGBTQ students report that they were verbally harassed, um, called names or threatened at school because of their sexual orientation. And almost a third of LGBTQ students report that they were being physically harassed, um, either pushed or shoved or even more violent situations. And these are numbers that really we need to pay attention to because as the adult in these adolescents' life, we need to understand what they're going through on this daily basis. A thing that has come to light in this most recent survey is also the idea that 50% of LGBTQ students experienced some form of electronic harassment in the past year. So we're looking at either on social media or on instant messenger or snap or places like that where these kids are seeing this harassment showing up for them on a pretty strong and continuous basis. Now, when I was growing up, if there was any bullying or harassing going on, I had that happen during my school day. And at the end of the school day, I could go home, do some homework, maybe read a book, and kind of reset and rebalance myself. And the next morning when I would wake up, I would, what I would call, put on my armor if it was necessary and be able to go back into school but feel a little bit healed, a little bit stronger. For a lot of these kids, because of this 24-hour cycle of being able to be bullied online, they're not able to do that reset. So this makes this harassment an even more challenging experience for them. So moving on, I mentioned earlier that a lot of times I meet kids because of an att a suicide attempt. And it's important to understand that in the Gleason study, what they found that 20 to 35% of gay youth who were interviewed have made some type of suicide attempt. This is a high number. And we need to look at, at the national average for adolescents, we're looking at somewhere between 9 to 14% as far as making suicide attempts. So this is almost triple that reported number that LGBTQ youth are seeing this as the only option to resolve the pain and anguish that they're in right now. And also, a really interesting study that came out at a later basis, um, these are with college-age kids. And what it looked at, these were kids who had now gone through their coming out process and were feeling very confident in their identity. And almost 60% of them reported considering suicide when they were in high school. And if we look at a national average, suicidal ideation tends to sit somewhere in the 14 to 20% range. And we're looking at a 60% reported considering suicide for LGBTQ adolescents. That number is huge. And is it possible that kids are seeing this as their only outlet because they don't have support in their communities or their families or have a trained therapist to be there 
to help them walk through this process. Now, making a little shift here. In this same study, we looked at the fact that over 50% of LGBTQ students reported that their schools actually had discriminatory policies or practices that were in place. And it's interesting because we often try and de define schools as being this safe space for kids. And yet these kids are reporting that their schools themselves have discriminatory policies or procedures in place that make it unsafe for them. And more than 60% of kids said that they weren't going to report any incident of verbal or physical harassment because of their LGBTQ identity to school staff because often nothing was done in response. And sometimes the answer would be to students to simply ignore that this incident had happened. So if we look at all these stressors that our LGBTQ kids are going through in their school experience, it's also important to understand that this puts them at a higher risk for substance use, depression, anxiety, and risky sexual behaviors. So why should we be intervening? So that we can try and keep these kids safe and to help them create a strong sense of themselves as they go through the coming out process. So as we've been chatting, I've been throwing out lots of terms that for me are part of my natural vocabulary but maybe for you are something that you want to work on and learn a little bit about. So let's go back to some of the most basic conversations. Um, let's start with biological sex. So biological sex really describes the term that says these are the biological, genetic, or physical characteristics that define males and females through genitalia. And it's important in our conversation, especially when we're looking at gender, is to realize that these external show of genitalia are how sex is assigned at birth. And I want you to pay attention to that word because when we are respectfully communicating in the, in the um, transgender and gender non-conforming non-binary uh, communities, we have to understand this word assigned because a doctor will look at the external representation of a, of a baby's body and they will assign them as male or female based on that. But what we know now is that sex is actually a much more complex um, piece of self-description and external representation. And so we need to use this word assigned when respectfully connecting with this community. So the next word I'd like to look at is the word gender. So gender is the social, psychological, and emotional traits often influenced by societal expectations. So what this means is that gender, the idea, the external story of what male, female, masculine, feminine means is a social construct. Some examples might be the phrase, boys don't cry, or that little girls wear pink. These things are social constructs. They're how society defines what makes someone a boy or a girl. Next, we have a thing called gender identity. And gender identity is our internal, personal held belief of being male, female, some of both, or maybe even neither. So where gender is a description that comes from the outside, from society, our gender identity is a deeply held personal internal experience of who we know that we are. 
So how do we show that gender identity to the world? Often through what we call gender expression. And gender expression is the way a person communicates their gender identity, that internal sense of self, to everyone else in the world through external means such as clothing, mannerisms, speech patterns, and social interactions. So we have gender outside social construct, gender identity, our internal sense of ourselves, and gender expression, how we show that identity to the world. One other piece that's important to have in this conversation is also understanding sexual orientation. And sexual orientation is the gender or sex we're attracted to sexually. Um, an individual's romantic, emotional, or sexual feelings towards other people. And very important in this conversation to understand that gender and sexual orientation are two completely different topics. So we want to be powerful in keeping those two separate to understand that um, a phrase that someone gave me that I think is really powerful, that sexual orientation is who you go to bed with and gender identity is who you go to bed as. And by separating these two, we're allowed to create respect for each of these conversations. So I know at this moment, you might be a little overwhelmed with definitions, but I wanna give us just a few more so we can deepen our conversation and respect when we're chatting with these kids. So what we're gonna do now is build a vocabulary based on some of those letter things you see, like LGBTQQIA. In fact, those are the very letters we're gonna to define together right now. So let's start with the L. L stands for lesbian. And lesbian is a female identified person who has an emotional, romantic, sexual, intellectual, spiritual, or physical attraction or behavior with another female identified person. And you'll notice I didn't just say who they had sex with. Because for me, I think it's so important to bring the essence of who we are, these emotional, romantic, sexual, intellectual, spiritual connections as part of this identity. For most people, the word lesbian is used to describe female-identified people. The word gay is often used for a male-identified person who has an emotional, romantic, sexual, intellectual, spiritual, or physical attraction with another male-identified person. Now, what we find mostly in the community is that men tend to use the word gay, and female-identified persons tend to use the word lesbian. This is not a hard and fast rule, but it tends to be a little bit how it plays out in the community. The next definition I'd like to share with you is bisexual. And bisexual is a person who has emotional, romantic, sexual, or physical attraction or behavior with more than one gender. And I think it's so important that we give strong value to people who identify as bisexual because often they will become kind of the butt of a lot of jokes about the community. But bisexuality is an amazing, powerful, vibrant form of sexual expression, and it's important that we understand and respect that expression. Next, we have the letter T, which will mean transgender. And a transgender person is an individual whose gender identity differs from the biological sex that they were assigned at birth. 
So we're bringing together some of those terms from earlier in our conversation, gender identity, internal sense of self, differs from the birth sex we were assigned. Next letter in our conversation is one of the Q's. And we're gonna start with Q standing for queer. And queer has a lot of different connotations in the community. Um, but the definition we're gonna work with here today is someone who does not conform to rigid notions of gender and sexuality. Um, for myself personally, I identify as a queer man. And this has to do with some of the social political connotations of this word. Because queer used to be a word that was derogatory towards the community. And as someone who is an activist, an educator, and an advocate in my community, I want to take ownership of that word queer and say that you cannot use it as a word to put me down anymore. So queer has different connotations for different people, and it often will also be um, influenced or affected by the age of that person, where older communities may tend to find it still as, uh, slightly offensive, and younger communities are embracing of it. The other cue is questioning. And questioning is a really important exploratory phase um, where people are looking and to understand sexual orientation and gender identity and how it applies to who they are. Very important to understand that a questioning phase is really a beautiful, beautiful moment to support conversation. And especially for us as caregivers and mental health professionals to be willing to follow our clients through this questioning phase rather than trying to lead them down a specific path. So creating that support is a really beautiful way for these kids to be able to feel their way through into finding out who they are and who they want to be in the world. Another A, a letter that comes up quite often is A, which can be for asexual. And asexuality, in a big, broad, general term, is a person who does not experience sexual attraction or intrinsic desire to have sexual relationships. Now, I think it's really important to understand that someone who identifies as asexual is someone who actually does not have these attractions. Different than someone who is celibate, who has these attractions, but is choosing for their own reasons not to act on them. So under the umbrella of asexuality, there are lots of beautiful definitions that can describe different experiences of, of living an asexual life. Um, because of time constraints, we're not going to go into all of those, but I think it's important if you hear those words come up to respectfully have the people you're chatting with define them with you. And then the final letter that I want to look at today is ally, A. Um, because I think each of us who are here today in this conversation are allies to the LGBT community because we're seeking both education and understanding to be supportive, um, especially in today's conversation of LGBTQ adolescents as they're coming out. Okay, everybody, this would be a moment to take a big deep breath. That's a lot of definitions. Maybe you want to pause this for just a second, kind of put that all in your brain because we're now gonna move into a process of understanding some of the models of coming out.
Now, one of the questions I, I, I like to bring to people when we're looking at the coming out process is for people who identify as cisgender and heterosexual, when did you come out as straight? Now, I know this seems like a light question, but there's a lot of depth to it because it's important to understand that LGBTQ kids are going through a process that a lot of their peers are not. And because of going through that process, they are going to adapt and develop as people. And this very idea of coming out um, is a lifelong process that encourages continual development. So we're going to look at some of that actual process of coming out. And what we're going to do is we're going to start by conversing about what's called the CAS model of LGBTQ identity development. Important to understand, this is kind of one of the old foundational models of the coming out process. And um, there are definitely some challenges with it. It was based on mostly a male, um, white gay male um, coming out process strategy. And it did not include communities of color. Um, it did not include a lot of different socioeconomic status or include religious and spiritual belief systems and how they affected that. So we're going to talk about that after we've explained this model a little bit more um, to give you an insight into how we can apply it into different communities. But the reason why I want to present it today is because almost all of the models that have been developed since then are based on the foundations of what CAS brought to the conversation. So let's start at the beginning of this conversation in a stage that CAS identifies as identity confusion. So people in this stage of the coming out process, they're starting to notice their attraction to someone of the same sex and really begin to question what it means. Now, some things that people may react to that moment is uh, like we may have an inhibition strategy. And what this simply says is someone who starts to identify says, well, I'm just not having these feelings. And they put them away. Then there's a personal innocence strategy, which is a, a conversation in the head that just says, I don't really know what's going on with these thoughts or feelings. And then another response might be what we call an information seeking strategy. And this is when someone's going to start really trying to explore, well, what would this mean? What is this attraction all about? The next step will be what we call identity comparison. And this is when we start to accept the possibility that we might be LGBTQ. And at the same time, we're trying to see what does that look like out in the world? How does that compare to my cisgender heterocentric friends and peers? Now, a person in this phase can start to respond positively, and they might devalue the importance of heterocentric norms in their lives. Another response might be that a person starts to accept the definition of their own internal sense as LGBTQ, but rejects this definition of self as moving it out into the world and the community. And a third response that might come up is we might have an internal sense that yes, we are LGBTQ, we're exploring our sexual orientation, we're exploring our gender identity, but we so fear a negative reaction from others and we give cisgender energy and heterosexual energy much more positive weight in our lives as a way to push against any internal feelings we're having. The next piece of this puzzle would be what we call identity tolerance. 
And this is where we start to tolerate, to move more deeply into recognizing that we have sexual, social, and emotional needs that can only be filled by connecting to the LGBTQ community. So we start to come to terms with parts of ourselves through our sexual orientation or our gender identity. We're not quite fully ready to embrace it yet, but we're starting to understand that it is a part of ourselves that is growing and we need to nurture it and embrace it. We might start to seek out um, a gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender social community or community support systems as a way to explore and learn from others more about our identity. And there's also a time when we might start being looking to explore sexual activities. Next, we step into what's called identity acceptance. So in tolerance, we're starting to be able to sit with the anxiety of this identity. In acceptance, we really start to move across that anxiety and accept an image of ourselves as being part of an LGBT community. And there's an increased desire to contact and grow with us LGBTQ culture. So what do we do? We start to form friendships with other gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people. Um, we've been in coming out to a few trusted individuals. Um, those trusted individuals might be friends, they might be a parent, they might be a relative like an aunt or an uncle. We also start to realize that our life can and will be happy and fulfilling as a member of the LGBTQ community. Next, we move into what I uh, always appreciate as one of my favorite moments, especially working with teenagers, is what we call identity pride. And in this phase, um, people are really looking at this pride and our sexual orientation or our gender identity and become powerfully connected into our community. In this phase, we might start coming out to a lot more people by making our sexual orientation or our gender identity publicly known. Um, we might become more immersed in the LGBTQ community, maybe moving into activism or joining a group or creating um, social things like a GSA or a QSA at school. We may get involved in social activism. And in this identity pride phase, we often start exploring more deeply into our sexual activity and may start to form some first relationships. One of the ways that I like to describe it in this identity pride phase, this is when being gay is the number one thing on our list of who we are. Next, we move into a phase called identity synthesis. And in identity synthesis, my sexual orientation or my gender identity becomes fully integrated into the whole of who I am. So as I mentioned in Pride, my queer identity might be the number one thing that I lead with. But in synthesis, I may describe myself as a therapist, a husband, a yoga teacher, a gardener, a baker, a dog owner, and I'm queer. So this becomes integrated into the wholeness of who I am. So we start to develop a more holistic view of ourselves and our place in the world. Um, a big, beautiful moment in synthesis is we start to feel equally comfortable in straight, gay, lesbian, transgender, or bisexual environments. And we start to be more confident in expressing ourselves and our views in a public forum. 
And in this synthesis phase is also an opportunity. We start to create really healthy and deep emotional romantic relationships and start to partner up. So just as we did before, I want you to take a pause, take a breath. That is a lot of information to be taking in at any one moment. And it's important to understand that this, although I presented it in a linear manner, that the coming out process is not actually a linear experience. It is something that continually goes on um, throughout a lifetime. And if we look at this, um, there's also a model called the Homosexual Lifespan Developmental Model. And this came out in 1994. I don't think I gave the date earlier, but the CAS model came out in 1979. And in this lifespan model, what we're really looking at is this ongoing dance of coming out and finding community, um, developing intimacy, um, maybe kind of pushing away from heterocentric norms or cisgender norms as part of what we're supposed to be taking on as a life story. Um, a deeper development of our personal LGBTQ identity and also finding out what that means in the community. So this lifespan model really looks at developing and moving out into a deeper experience. There's also a transgender emergence model. And it's important to understand that this journey for someone who is trying to really express their gender identity um, has some different pieces to it as well. So understanding that there's going to be an awareness moment. There's going to be some seeking information and reaching out. Um, there's once again going to be disclosure and exploration of what their affirmed identity means to them and how they articulate that and show that into the world. Also important to understand that with transgender kids, gender non-binary kids, gender non-conforming kids, there's also going to be these phases of transition. Perhaps starting with social transition, where we're going to look at things of of gender expression, changing our clothing, our hair, um, altering our voice presentation, maybe looking at our affirmed name and pronouns. And all of these are going to be pieces of that puzzle at social level. And then there's also going to be a phase of medical transition, which might look at hormone affirming therapy, which for someone who was assigned female at birth and identifies as male, to be the addition of testosterone. For someone who is assigned male at birth and identifies as female, it might be something having testosterone blockers and introducing estrogen into the system. Also for kids who are in early stages of tanner puberty, there's the access to puberty blockers, which are going to pause puberty as kids are working with their identity development and create a place for the body to safely then express itself when the kids are ready to affirm with hormone therapy. Now, important to understand, I'm throwing out a lot of information that may feel a little bit confusing. But think how confusing it may be to these kids as they're going through this journey and for their families. So one thing that I want to throw in just to give you a little bit more information. I keep throwing these words cis and trans out into the world. So what does this mean? Cisgender simply means that our 
identity, our gender identity, our internal sense of self matches the assigned birth sex. So we're on the same side of, that's the Latin prefix, cis, on the same side of. Transgender simply means that our gender identity does not correspond with our assigned birth sex. So trans, from the Latin, on the other side of. And why do we use this languaging? Because a lot of time it was just simply that there was society and there were transgender people. And that's really disrespectful and a little bit uh, demeaning to this othering energy. So by now saying that there are cisgender people and transgender people, it means that all of us are included in our gender identification. And I believe personally that it helps to equalize the playing field and bring a little bit more comfort into the experience. So that's how these words are being used. And what's great about all of these definitions that I've given you today, especially if you're working with adolescents, is that these definitions are going to alter and change over time. Where today, I'm giving you the information that's most current to my experience. By tomorrow, a year from now, five years from now, these terms are going to shift and change in response to the community's needs. Often people will ask me, well, why is it I need to know all of these definitions? Um, I'm a loving, caring person, and I'm going to offer that love to whomever I meet. And what I shared with them is that as a queer man, the reason why all these definition terms are vital and important is actually for my well-being. For me to be able to share with you my identity and for you to understand how that identity is powerful and important to me as a person. And then to bring all of that love and caring into the model so that now your love and caring is, is communicated with respect and information. So that's why it's really vital and important to explore and understand these definitions. And also, as I said a moment ago, to be flexible with them as they change and alter in our community. So early on when I introduced the CASP model to you, I did share with you that there are some variables in the model that we need to be able to apply. And this really actually is important to the application of any of these models that I've mentioned as part of describing the coming out process. One of the things to first step with is really understand how this model alters in communities of color and in communities that have very strong religious belief systems. So if we look at sexual orientation and gender identity as part of this social construct piece, we understand that each culture is going to create their own version of what maleness, femaleness, heterosexuality, and homosexuality looks like. So it's important for us to respectfully step into communities of color and learn from them what being a gay person, a queer person, a transgender person, an asexual person looks like and means and feels like in their community. And remember, and this is part of my passion, is that it is not anyone's job to educate us on who they are. It is our job to educate and reach out and be curious and respectful. So this is a way that we can start to mold and adapt this CAS model and any of these coming out models into the communities that we're working with. Also, important to understand, 
that if I am coming out and I have a very strong religious or spiritual life, that that's going to influence how I move through any of these coming out models. Because if you think about it, if my religious system is very anti-gay or anti-gender exploration or understanding, that I'm not only going to be potentially going through a deep discovery process of who I am, but I'm going to potentially be losing that religious or spiritual system in the process. So this is where there can be a lot of pressure to conform externally while there's a huge battle going on internally. And I want to take our process and do a little sidetrack for a moment to help you understand that this idea of this battle between our external sense and our internal sense is huge in LGBTQ adolescents. And what it can often do is trigger a response that I call hypervigilance. And in this hypervigilance, these kids are on a constant watch around them for the safety of who they are in the world around them. And in hypervigilance, they're going to be releasing huge amounts of cortisol and adrenaline in a constant stream through their body as they're constantly checking around to see how they're fitting in. What does this checking around mean? One of the best ways to describe it is where if I'm out with my partner at a restaurant and I want to reach across the table and hold his hand, even myself, someone who has spent years coming to terms and understanding a deep sense of who I am in the world, will have this moment of like, is it okay for me to do it in this environment? Am I going to be safe reaching across the table in this restaurant, in this night, at this location? And that constant checking out is something that I'm still going through as a queer identified man who's very solid in who I am. But think about it in terms of an adolescent. Walking into Thanksgiving dinner, how big are my actions going to be? How are they going to be interpreted? How are they going to be felt? And to understand that hypervigilance is a huge part of how kids are walking through the world. And that's why they might be experiencing depression, anxiety, or turning to substance, anything from drugs, alcohol, food, electronics, as a way to mask or ease that hypervigilance. So as clinicians, we need to be aware of this. So going back now to this idea of the coming out models, some other things that can influence them, really important to understand, is the actual levels of family support. So when we look at family support, in families that are willing to meet their kids, to learn from them, to experience with them, these kids tend to have a much more powerful experience of coming out, and that their families become part of the process as well. So what can family support look like? Well, let's say we have a negative family response to a kid sharing their LGBTQ identity. In a negative family response, we're going to be looking at things like maybe the parents or family are going to block these kids' access to LGBTQ support systems. They may be throwing out friends, telling them, or phrases that, such as telling them that God will punish them, um, oftentimes telling them to keep it secret, or forcing them to take on more masculine or feminine identified traits as a way to push against anyone understanding this identity or outing them. So these negative responses 
can really cue a lot of anxiety in these kids. And often that will show up uh, in ways such as poor school performance. It will show up as poor school attendance or more discipline in school. Um, it may also show up as not seeing a future that's powerful for them. Um, a lot of kids who have been interviewed have spoken to the fact that without their family support um, for their LGBTQ identity, that they had no idea or uh, dreams of pursuing a secondary education. So this negative family response can have a huge influence on these kids. On the other side of the coin, if our family has a positive response, what would this look like? It would look like they would be able to talk about LGBTQ identity. Um, in this process of talking, expressing unconditional love and care for their child. And this is a big one for me, that in these positive family responses, parents, siblings, extended family can support the LGBTQ identity of their kid, even though at times it may feel uncomfortable for them. And for parents and extended family to be able to sit with this discomfort but make their love of their kid bigger than that discomfort can have a huge positive response on these kids' experience. Another family positive response system is connecting their kids and themselves with LGBT community resources and really actively and dynamically um, supporting their kids' gender expression and sexual orientation. So I mentioned a moment ago that it's really important in a positive family response for the entire family to support the LGBTQ identity, even when it might start feeling a little bit uncomfortable. And I want to address that discomfort directly. So a lot of times when the kids that I work with start expressing their identity and are really looking at this developmental process, they've had time to think about it, mull it over, explore for themselves how it might feel inside, how it might feel to grow into that expression. They've had process time. But then when they come out to the parents, for many parents, this is the first time they've actually been exposed to this part of their child. And they start to go through a process. And some of that process might include denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Sound familiar? It is. What we're looking at is a grief process. Oftentimes, families will go through a grief process in this moment of their child coming out to them. And what I think is important is to actually point this out to parents and families so that they understand the feelings they have do have a place in this process. I point this out to both the kids and the families because I think it's important for the kids to understand that their parents may need a little bit of space and time to be able to move through their own process and for parents to understand so that even the most supporting parents have a place to move through their own internal process because it's real for them as well. And coming out often is a family process because a kid will come out to parents, 
And then everyone has to look at, well, how do we present that to the extended family? How will grandma and grandma be part of this coming out process? How will it look to our friends and family? How will it look in the community? And to understand that everyone is going to be coming out in different ways. I do think it's important in this kind of multi-family coming out process that we do let our LGBTQ adolescents be the ones who are the leader in that process. I often have very well-meaning parents who, when they find out their kid shares their LGBTQ identity with them, race out into the family and share delightfully, openly, powerfully. And yet their kids aren't actually ready to come out in that larger model. So by having conversations, you know, thank you so much for coming out to this. Who else in the family do you want to know right now? And then following that lead with their kids and using that as a template for each interaction that they have so that this builds a, a, a connection in the family about how we're all going to come out together. So when we talk about this grief process, I think it's important to add just a little caveat to it. And that would be that most parents, when they give birth to their child, they look into their child's eyes and they project forward an entire lifetime for that kid based on their own biases and agendas. They may look into that kid's eyes and see them as like growing up to, you know, be the valedictorian at school and to play sports or be involved in the arts and then go to college and meet the, the, the person of their dreams and get married and then move next door and buy a house and have kids and, and a golden retriever. So when their kid comes out, that dream gets shattered. So the support is for the grief of that dream, but to assist these parents and families in understanding that the beautiful child that they gave birth to is still there, standing right in front of them. So moving through this grief process, the shattering of the dream in a supportive manner to build a welcome and embrace into the new identity that's being shown to them. So this is a lot now. We've looked at family dynamics. We've looked at the coming out process. But I think it's important to also create a little bit of space to look at, well, how do we support these kids? What's the best thing that we can do? So one of the first things that I like to talk about is moving back into um, Carl Rogers, that idea of unconditional positive regard. And what I like to shift it into is what I call unconditional care and love. Because when these kids come to us, their anxiety is high. It's through the roof. And if we can create this supportive environment with unconditional positive care and love, we see the essence of the person as they're struggling with this conversation, that we can create a supportive space and a model where they can feel comfortable as they grapple with their own internal sense of identity. Really, really powerful. I also like the idea of a supportive model being that we affirm our support for these kids as we work with them. So how do we do that? Well, 
I think it's important to affirm our support that we don't just say we affirm it, but we actually give a little evidence of that. We get ourselves educated, um, just like we're doing today. We perhaps become socially involved and we become more active in communities and offer care um, beyond just the work that we're doing. Because our visibility in the community is a really powerful way for these kids to see that we care about their journey and we care about their experience. Another way that we can offer our care and our love in these moments is to really get ourselves educated. Today's just the beginning. What I'm sharing with you is just the tip of the iceberg on a really beautiful and powerful journey that all of us can take if we choose to look at the resources. So finding those resources can be really powerful and they're exciting for our own personal growth. Another piece that's important is to meet these kids and their families where they are. A lot of times this is an ongoing process. I've mentioned that earlier. And we need to be able to learn from our kids as they're walking through this experience. I think it's very important for myself as a, a sexual orientation and gender affirming therapist to make clients know that I don't have an agenda as to who they become and how they come out. My piece of the puzzle is not necessarily to lead, but to walk side by side with them with information, experience, knowledge, and support. And in this determination to become an ally, to become an affirming therapist, I think it's really important for us to accept that people have the right to define their own gender and their sexual orientation regardless of our social constructs. That we really need to support this ability and this powerful exploration that kids are having in finding out who they are when it comes to gender and sexual orientation. Really important too to be an ally, to respect that people have their identity and when they share it with you, it is our responsibility to respond to it with respect and kindness. So when a kid comes to you and shares their pronouns and their name and their identification, that we don't need to question it or be awkward about it. Instead, what we get to do is support it and affirm it and to use the pronouns as they present it and to use the names as they present it. Also, another great way to be an ally powerfully is to really challenge um, any anti-LGBTQ comments or conversations that happen around you. That we are invited to step up to the plate and be a little bit more powerful and maybe identify that, wow, that comment you just made, that joke you just made, it's not appropriate. And it may actually hurt the feelings or be harmful to someone in our radius who might hear it. To be willing to step up and challenge those conversations. Also, best way to be an ally is really to listen to the stories and experiences of LGBTQ people. To not base it on our own assumptions of what it might be, look like to be LGBTQ, but to actually learn from others about their experience, their story, and what it was like to walk through life in their shoes. As a queer identified therapist, I have my own journey, but it's not the only journey that's out there. And I realize that a lot of the information and the point of view that I come from often carries a lot of optimism in it. 
So it's important for me to understand other people's process, other people's experience that is differing than mine, so that I can be supportive in all environments. And be willing to express that support everywhere that you are as a part of the fabric of who you are as you walk through the world. So maybe right now some of you are feeling a little bit awkward and I want to just let you know that gender and sexual, gender identity and sexual orientation are a really complex thing. And I think what's really powerful right now, as I mentioned earlier, is that our adolescents, our kids, are leading the way in this conversation. Often, if an eight-year-old who was assigned male at birth um, turns to a friend and says, yeah, but I'm a girl, their friend will usually say like, okay, cool. And they will be totally present with that. But then we talk about the teachers, the parents, um, the school bus driver. They're having a lot of trouble and feel awkward in these conversations. So what if we choose to let the kids lead the way and we learn from them in this process. It's a really complex thing. And so important, I hope you take away from today this idea that individuals can define their own gender identity and sexual orientation. And that we need to respect that identification as it's shared with us. We also need to be willing to challenge gender identity and sexual orientation stereotypes. It's always fascinating to me that if there is a male-identified kid who's running around the playground and has what we may describe some feminine physical body language, that that suddenly becomes a big question mark in everyone's face, but that's a stereotype. These stereotypes are based on our social constructs and what makes male feminine, masculine feminine behavior. And if we can move beyond that binary, that we can actually create space for deeper development. And I want to also add one little piece of the conversation. I've been using the word binary throughout our talk today. And binary simply means the idea of looking at things in only a masculine, feminine, male, female manner. It's based on computer language. Computer language is based on zeros and ones. Everything is black and white. But when we look at gender, identity, and sexual orientation, what if they didn't have to be defined between these two black and white stories, between these zeros and ones, between male and female? One of the ways that I like to help people kind of visualize this a little bit is if you imagine that you are writing up a Word document and you have a section where you want to change the color of the font. So you select it, you press the button to change the color, and then at the bottom it says more colors. And when that comes up, there's that beautiful little wheel that has all these different hues of colors on it. Well, I like to take that and then spin it so it becomes spherical. And within that, we can move our little cursor, that little dot, and create all different types of shades and colors of gender identity and sexual orientation as we personally define them. So maybe take that as your way to start moving into a deeper, fuller understanding of what gender identity and sexual orientation may look like. And remember, this is an evolving story. It continues to grow and change with every day and every breath that we take. Um, I present these trainings all over the country. 
And each time I do, I hear new questions and new observations from people who have come to learn from me. And taking that information, starting to integrate it deeper into our conversations is such a powerful experience as the story evolves. So we've made it through a pretty intense conversation and it's been a lot of deepness, depth to it. <laughs> and what I wanna say is a lot of you may be feeling right now or maybe feeling when you're out in the world or working with LGBTQ clients that I don't wanna mess it up. And I gotta offer you this thought. If you mess it up, take a breath. Allow yourself to reset. Apologize for that moment. Maybe ask for a little help. I'm sorry, can you remind me of your pronouns? Catch yourself and own it. And when you're unclear, be willing to ask. Sometimes it's as simple as that, that we need to move away from these very fraught conversations. Um, if I accidentally misgender you, rather than taking on this like, oh, I'm so sorry, I know better, I, I, I gotta take this on, I gotta, fix, I gotta be perfect for you. We're doing that moment is we're making a huge deal out of it. We're also making it about ourselves. But if we can simply own and apologize and breathe, we can start to make these deeper connections. And when having deeper connections with adolescents especially, I think it's so vital to meet them where they're at and to listen to what they have to say. Because for those of you who work with adolescents, you know that we can pause and listen to them that they are brilliant and delightful and educating us and pushing the boundaries of all the things that we may believe are part of our normal daily experience. And when we can meet them where they are and listen to what they have to say, we ourselves are gonna have these beautiful, powerful opportunities to grow. And I wanna leave you with this final thought. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with this. There's a, a beautiful campaign out there by the Trevor Project called It Gets Better. And in this It Gets Better campaign, they have celebrities and sports figures and um, intellectuals and singers, all kinds of people who have a high profile sharing their experience of the LGBTQ life and how by moving through it, they survived it and life got better for them. This campaign is beautiful. If you haven't seen it, just simply Google it, it will come up. The videos are powerful and beautiful and affirming. And I have one little challenge with it. It doesn't just get better. We come together and we make it better. It is an active choice on our parts. And by you choosing to listen to this training today, you are taking the first steps on that journey of making it better. So I encourage you to take today's as simply a stepping stone and to continue your education, to continue your growth of the understanding of the LGBTQ coming out process for adolescents and to know that it's a beautiful, shining journey to take and these kids will amaze and impress you. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me for this past hour and to learn some of these most basic processes for LGBTQ adolescents. If you have more questions, please feel free to reach out 
and hopefully today you will step forward with just a little bit more knowledge on how to be a powerful ally and supporter of LGBT, LGBTQ adolescents and the coming out process. Thanks for your time. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.